Hi, welcome Garland readers to our podcast series on key thinkers in the world of makers. There was much fun made of hipsters in the early millennium. This movement seemed to embrace an ironic relation to consumerism, seeking last year's fashion, such as vinyl records, and most notoriously in San Francisco, a, a re-emergence of old-fashioned toast in a sea of plastic-wrapped muffins. It was an easy target for comedies like Portlandia, which used it to depict a self-absorbed middle class. But five years ago, a book emerged that challenged this depiction of hipsters. Masters of Craft, Old Jobs in the New Economy by Richard Osejo, reflected an evolution of the hipster into a producer rather than a consumer. This book profiled a generation of white middle-class men who embraced manual trades, transforming them from low-status labour into an occupation involving expertise. The trades included butchers, bartenders, distillers and barbers. It signalled quite a hopeful recalibration of our social order, which places manual labour low in the hierarchy. So five years on, I'm curious to learn how the masters have fared. Is it a growing movement or yet another short-term fad? I'm pleased to talk to the author himself, Richard Osejo, is currently Professor of Sociology at John Jay College and the Cooney Graduate Centre, as well as a podcaster himself for the New Books and Sociology Network. Welcome, Richard, and could you start by painting for us a, a scene of where you are currently? Sure. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Um, I'm, I'm currently in my wife's upstairs office in our house. I, we live in uh, the Hudson Valley, which is about 50 miles north of New York City. So that's where I am. And uh, nice and chilly, I imagine, still? Yeah, we have, we've had a cold snap uh, as uh, spring has technically started, but it hasn't arrived. Good. Well, uh, can we start by a recap of your book? Would you like to uh, reflect on what it is that you found in this book, what its main story was? Yeah, sure. So the book, as you as you put it, was uh, meant to be a little bit of a of a challenge, uh, not just to the consumerist narrative that had framed a lot of the activities and industries that I was looking at, but also as a, a, a little bit of a challenge to some of the discussions that were going on in the sociology of work uh, and the work literature at the time and still uh, around you know, these ideas of precariousness and precarious labor. And these cases I was trying to show or have been re-enchanted by these practitioners who apply these very specialized techniques and these forms of cultural knowledge to the work that they do within a community of practice to enliven and enrich the uh, low status jobs um, that the that these jobs had become. Uh, so really just the, the, the main story of the book is just how how this has happened is how these low status, undesired, even dirty jobs have 
come to be seen as more highly, higher status, more highly desired, even cool jobs that involve cultural taste making and that involve various types of technical skill uh, with, without in any way compromising the middle class statuses and identities of the practitioners themselves. So that was the, the point of the book was to offer those different challenges and just tell the story of how this happens, how it came to be. And as you mentioned, I, I had four cases that I, that I chose to do and I, I could have chosen uh, a lot more, but um, those, those are the four that I selected, the bartenders, distillers, barbers, and, and butchers. Good. Uh, so Richard, can you tell me, uh, in terms of this idea of the, the masters of craft, do you, do you see it, did you see it as an evolution of the, the hipster? Is it uh, a way in which the hipster becomes a more, more serious kind of figure or is it running kind of parallel? Is it a separate development? I think it runs pretty parallel. And while in popular media, you would see the, the term hipster get applied to these workers, like the, the hipster bartender or the, the hipster butcher, and they'd have all the, you know, all the status symbols, like uh, the, the tattoos and, you know, flannel shirts and beards and, and all the stuff that in the US at least um, came to be associated with, with the hipster. Um, they were quite different. And I think you, you, you pinpointed what that difference is by bringing up the topic of irony and how the hit for the hipster, uh, so much of material culture is really kind of kept at a, at a distance from their, their, you know, core identities, I suppose. Uh, while for these folks, there, there wasn't a distance, there wasn't irony, there was a genuine interest there was a genuine genuine vocational uh, pursuit that they were engaging in they they there was love you know there was passion for what one does um it very much dovetailed with the the do what you love mantra that has come to characterize a lot of contemporary work you know the idea that if you, you figure out what you love to do and you'll never work another day in your life. And, and for these folks, it was a, it was a reality um, to them. And most of them, for the most part, I mostly, I mostly studied the, the winners uh, in this pursuit, the ones who were successful. Um, not everyone was, but for those who were, this was not a, a, a fad for them. This was not a uh, playing dress up, um, this was not a casual thing that they were going to do for a few years and then drop when the next thing came around. This was what they wanted to do. Uh, it was part of their occupational identity and it really consumed their lives in, in many cases. They, they devoted themselves to it. They dedicated themselves to it. And I, I, I wouldn't say that the, the hipster evolved into this. I, I still think that there are plenty of... Uh, you know, hangers on or, or people who are adjacent to 
these industries and pursuits uh, for whom it is more or less a form of reflexive consumption, but rather distant from who they really are, what their values are or anything like that. Um, But for these folks, it was quite the opposite. It was quite a serious uh, passion. Richard, I imagine you you thought a lot about the the title of this book. Uh, The word master is uh, one obviously that has a, a long history. It's relatively uh, out of use in the, in the West, though uh, in our hemisphere in Australia and Asia, it's it's very common, uh, particularly in countries like uh, China and Japan, uh, and it's almost always a, a male figure, but it does reflect uh, someone who has very high status in terms of their skill, not only for what they produce, but also for how they represent their craft and teach others and provide a model. Uh, I'm just curious uh, how you found this particular term. uh, How did it go down? Uh, I imagine that many might have felt that it was uh, a very gendered term or racialized. Uh, How did it, uh, how do people respond to it? Yeah, it's a great question. So I'm, I'm gonna own the title. But I should say it isn't mine. I, I didn't come up with it. My press came up with it. I forgot exactly what my original title was that I gave to them, but they suggested that we change it to that. I didn't have the word master in there. Um, then I, I had an argument similar to what you said, um, which was the, the, the gendered nature of it, the, the racialized nature of it, and also just the uh, the way that these folks framed their work and what they did, they, they kind of never saw themselves as masters or they would not have been comfortable with that because they, they were always seeking to learn more and they never, they, they would have felt that being a, considered a master would mean that you've made it or that you've, you've, you've exhausted all of the, um, avenues of discovery and of learning, um, but anyway, I lost that um, argument with my press, as uh, a lot of academic authors do. And so it's it's in there. So I, I own it, though. And I did get some uh, criticism from people, not necessarily about the title, but, but about the content, because the content is uh, very much a, a white male middle class story. Uh, these are the folks who were most involved and most active in the the workplaces and the scenes and the communities that I studied. These were the folks who were the, mostly the, the owners, the investors, the entrepreneurs, the, the managers, the, the leaders, the um, actual leaders, the symbolic leaders of these communities in, in New York City, but where I focused it, but also throughout uh, the country. And so that was the the emphasis and the focus of of the book. And while I was giving talks on the book over the years, um, I tried to emphasize those elements to the the title and to the content, tried to problematize it uh, a little bit and, and just point out the, uh, the ways that 
power structures like like gender, like race, uh, really reproduce inequalities within these scenes. And it's quite evident exhibit A would just be the demographics of the people who are in these jobs, who succeed in these jobs, um, who are given uh, opportunities within these industries. Um, while it's not a central part of the book, and that was probably the most criticism that I got for the book along these lines. And it is captured very well in the title, uh, but mostly it was, it was toward the content. I've tried to uh, not, not balance it out, but, but try to uh, inject some of these conversations uh, into my conversations about the book. So yeah, absolutely. There was, there was a little bit of, a little bit of pushback, a little bit of um, calling me, calling me, uh, calling me out rightfully so um, for what's not featured in there. Um, and that's, you know, I love that about books is that, you know, we get to, you make a big statement, but it's never the end and it always leads to further conversations. So I'm, 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 I'm pleased that I've had that opportunity to uh, bring up some of these topics that aren't front and center, as front and center as they should be in the book. It's a dilemma because uh, obviously there are many positive things about the opportunity to develop a specialization, a skill that uh, brings pleasure and, and value to other people's lives and helps us understand things like, um, in case of, say, say a butcher, all the different parts of an animal and making sure that nothing is wasted and uh, that we uh, uh, kill responsibly and eat responsibly. And it reflects uh, the, the kind of writing of people like Richard Sennett and Glenn Adamson, the movement, the future is handmade movement, which uh, uh, saw this as being a revival of these kinds of skills as a counterpoint to the increasingly abstract knowledge economy. Uh, so do you see ways in which the the concept of master could potentially evolve so that it's not seen as exclusive to this particular demographic? Uh, were there any other question. terms that uh, were mm. floating around? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fantastic question. And it's something I've grappled with over the years that, as you've identified, these are activities that are born out of modern forms of privilege and that are, you know, supported uh, by, uh, by privilege and by forms of entitlement as well. And so how do you both promote the, the practices of, you know, sustainability, of having a relationship with the material, uh, getting away from the, you know, the more abstract knowledge work that you mentioned that folks like Senate talk about. How do you how do you do that while simultaneously dismantling the power structures that have made this such an exclusive pursuit in the first place? Um, and I don't I don't know. I, I, I haven't quite, I haven't quite figured out 
what has to come first, right? Like, do, do we have to figure out how to make these industries and communities uh, more exclusive? Do we have to make them explicitly anti-racist, anti-sexist? Um, or do we have to address uh, racial structures and, and gender power structures and sexuality power structures first? Uh, I don't know. You know, I, I think these are uh, big topics, but it's it's pretty evident from just what I looked at uh, is that these are enormously exclusive uh, pursuits. Only a few handful of people relatively speaking will get the opportunity to to pursue something that boosts their their self-esteem boosts their status while also you know, providing them with a living um and furthering a you know a, a positive uh, uh pursuit of sustainability um and i, I don't know um uh, uh, but it, it, it just it just ends up reproducing you know, the conditions that elevated these people there in the first place. Uh, I, think, I, I don't know the way around it. I think given it's a privilege taking that into account, Richard, uh, it could still be seen as, uh, you know, addressing or recalibrating, as I said, the, the kind of hierarchy between knowledge and labor, uh, at least within the middle class, but that, you know, could have impact beyond that. And I'm just wondering... You know, say, for instance, in Indian culture, within the concept of caste, which we tend to see as something hierarchical, uh, it is uh, something which involves a kind of a life calling, a dharma, that uh, one is one's duty in the world and one's uh, place in the world, uh, which, which, gives it, which gives it meaning. And which I guess opens up the, the question of to what extent you think this might be specific to the culture of the United States? Uh, did you find many parallels outside the U.S.? Well, certainly outside the U.S., um, you know, but pretty much always in the West, um, or if it were in the global South, uh, it would have been through uh, networks, through um, various channels, including corporate ones that had, uh, spread it. And, you know, it would have been in these micro geographies, like tourist destinations and resorts and so on. Um, in, in terms of the specific, uh, practices and tastes and knowledges that I was finding in, in the U S that is, Obviously, uh, the, the U.S. hardly doesn't have a, any kind of monopoly whatsoever when it comes to the crafts, craftsmanship or, you know, making, um, obviously. Um, but in other countries in the West, Europe, Canada, and so on, um, it was quite prevalent, quite widespread uh, in terms of the practices and in terms of the, the philosophies that helped propel these jobs uh, from becoming or to becoming higher status uh, as a, uh, for instance, a 
uh, a counter to knowledge work um, or as a reclamation of manual labor, the idea of kind of reconnecting uh, people with work practices and with materials. That was a, a kind of severing that took place in, in the West from the fall of the industrial era uh, and, the, and the rise of you know, modern technologies and so on. So the, the places where we've seen this, this clear kind of break are, I think, you know, the places where we see this very deliberate, very reflexive uh, reattachment. So I think it's a, I would go so far as to say it's, it's a Western phenomenon that you have this um, very, very voluntary, uh, very um, uh, individualized, um, community driven, but, but also very individualized pursuit of reclaiming something, right? Reclaiming work, reclaiming the, you know, use of one's hands, the use of one's body and so on for uh, purposes of labor. Um, and I think it's, it, you'll see it in other places, certainly. And I'm not, I, I wouldn't know uh, if they're similar, if they've emerged kind of independently of relations with, with the West, probably not, but um, They'll just have a different set of meanings uh, attached to them. So if we extended it uh, beyond the United States to the West, Richard, uh, what do you think might be at work there? Is it, uh, you know, something to do with uh, a Protestant culture, one that, you know, since the Puritan times and extending that, say, to the United Kingdom and uh, countries like Australia, I know that we may have not the same scale of uh, masters of craft in Australia, but certainly in my city, Melbourne, we revere the barista. It's a very <laughs> uh, high prestige occupation. Uh, but uh, um, is, it, is it a form of excess of capital that uh, people are sort of looking for uh, ways of uh, creating value that outside the normal kind of industrial setting? You know, what, what do you think is at play at making this a kind of a Western phenomenon? Well, yeah, I think there is the, like, like I mentioned, I, I do think there is a, uh, a di desire to reconnect to some sort of fabled past of, it's fabled and not so fabled, I guess, of, um, of, of manual labor as uh, this, this kind of vaunted, noble, um, honorable pursuit. Uh, I also think like you said, there, there is a bit, there is certainly a little bit of the excess uh, that, that comes from, you know, being in a prosperous parts of the world uh, where through a, through economies that are very highly based on services that are very highly based on consumption, uh, where production has more or less material production has more or less been outsourced and uh, corporatized. 
and falling under these uh, models of, of mass production, you know, we, 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 we come to rely on consumption as our way of finding meaning, as our way of finding ourselves, finding who we are. And when you're forced to rely on that, then you have to figure out ways in which you can differentiate yourself through consumption. And you know, one of the ways is to consume the real, it's to consume the authentic. And handmaking, uh, artisanality, these sorts of things have been associated with authentic ways of living or authentic ways of being or authentic cultures for quite a while, um, you know, in, in part as a way to distinguish these things from the, the mass produced versions of these things. Uh, and now these have become you know, marketing slogans that, that you see used by uh, you know, giant global corporations. Um, but they still have that connotation to them uh, among you know, the, the middle classes and, and up more or less. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's those sets of relationships are our relationships in the West to, to work largely, and also our, our relationships to, to consumption and to our identities as consumers, which we have to be, um, based on how our societies and our, and their economies are structured. Uh, it, it's a, it's a way that we could use this, this thing, this activity that we, um, have to do to create something for ourselves, you know, to create meaning and to find others, you know, like-minded others, um, in a, a community of, of, you know, taste communities, to put it. Be a more a positive dimension of this when we look at the, the call, at least, I don't know if it's developed as a movement, especially, but the, the call to honor the maintainers those who work often behind the scenes uh, to keep our infrastructures running, our repairers for our you know, clothes and boots and various things. Uh, and I know with a phenomena like the Repair Cafe that uh, uh, this, this is something which uh, seems to be providing an interesting counterpoint to certainly fast fashion and, and other forms of consumerism. So it might be something that has a sort of a positive parallel in that realm as well. Um, but I'm wondering, Richard, I think the big question everyone's wondering is that, uh, you know, five years, perhaps it's, a, it's, it's long enough for some, a fashion to come and go. Uh, one of the issues is in the last couple of years, we've had the pandemic. And as you, you point out very interestingly at the end of uh, masters of craft that many of these these figures are, are publicly facing uh, that uh, the bartender obviously is is there to talk to the the drinker about uh, what they're what they're shaking up 
uh, even the same with the butcher to explain what's happening. Of course, the barber is there to to chat to uh, to the customer uh, that these are these are people who perform publicly, as you say, in front of a knowing audience. And uh, there wasn't a lot of public the last couple of years. <laughs> Certainly not where in my city of Melbourne. I'm not sure. I expect not a lot in in New York either. But uh, um, do you have a sense now that we're coming out of uh, that phase uh, whether these people are still around? Is it a, is it an enduring phenomenon? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, it was pretty devastating for the service industry in in New York City. The pandemic, absolutely. Um, I mean, a, a lot of places closed. A lot of people were out of work for, for at least many, many months. Um, there, I would, I'm, I, I can't speak very, very specifically. I can only, I can only speak pretty generally um, about, about this phenomenon. Um, on, on the one hand, the food and beverage service industry lost a lot of workers that nationwide really, but uh, New York City in particular. Um, but a lot of the food and beverage service industry is not necessarily consist of people who are making that their career, or, you know, making it a, a vocation, something that they're pursuing. Um, so for the service workers um, who I focused on, they, they struggled a lot. And I know a few places that definitely closed. Um, but my impression is that they, they needed the bar they needed the physical location um, to anchor their identities in, but they weren't necessarily dependent on it. They had a lot of outlets. They had a lot of uh, ways they could they could pivot at least temporarily until something r related to normalcy was going to return. Um, and I, and I don't know if it the pandemic. I don't think the pandemic killed it. it it didn't end the, the 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 trend we have been seeing of people finding meaningful work by imbuing these low status jobs with meaning with some kind of meaning that that trend has certainly not not stopped um but i but i do wonder how the pandemic has caused it to to shift and and the way i've come to understand the pandemic is that it did two things simultaneously. It accelerated processes that were already happening. We just didn't realize it. And, and it revealed problems that were already there, but we weren't really paying attention to. So what I think it would have done for, for, for this, for this industry is, well, one, it probably accelerated what had been happening. So, um, bartenders who were and then barbers and some of the other the other service folks who would have been you know pivoting into um other opportunities within their industry you know, things that they can do for instance the the home um cocktail making you know a uh, uh, segment of the drinks industry you know cocktails in a can cocktails in a bottle that exploded it was already happening and the pandemic just caused it to you know, mushroom. Um, but then what 
was revealed that was already there. And that would have been the inequality, the, the ones, the folks who were the most affected uh, by the pandemic is not the the master barbers or the master bartenders. It's the, the barbacks. It would have been the folks who were dependent on the bar. They're not dependent on this idea of what a cocktail is or the idea of what a, you know, perfect latte is or anything like that. Um, it's the really uh, backstage folks um, who have been most harmed by by the pandemic. That's probably pretty universal, certainly to the U.S. and probably to, to a lot of places. Um, so going forward, uh, I don't know. I mean, exactly what, it, what it'll look like. I can't imagine the, the phenomenon of uh, people pursuing this type of work change or ending. Well, I must say, Richard, uh, in, in my part of the world, a suburb called Brunswick in, in Melbourne, there's been a whole range of new businesses open which offer courses where you can learn ceramics, and this is really booming, but also decoupage, painting, a whole range, sewing, and uh, this seems to be maybe some response to the pandemic when we've spent so much time in isolation that uh, we're looking to connect with other people but we we really don't have many stories to tell because we've mm-hmm. had a fairly boring life it's not something that <laughs> we can bring to a bar and uh, uh, have much conversational capital so sitting working making together is is a way of being with people without having to perform uh, but having something in common and experience at the same time so I wonder, just, just to finish off, Richard, whether you could share with us a, uh, a little story about uh, one of these masters, to, to use this in quotation marks, uh, mm-hmm. that you still uh, connect with. Do you have any personal um, particular bartender or butcher or barber or whatever that uh, is part of, part of your life? Because I know, I mean, one of the wonderful things about your book was the, the level of experience that you put yourself in as an intern in these various trades. And so I imagine that that's left an enduring mark in your life. So uh, can you share with us an example of how that continues? Sure. So there's, you know, it's a, it's funny the the example I'm going to give is somebody who I met after the book came out, who is actually, you just mentioned what you mentioned is going on in your, where you live. Uh, He's a potter who opened up a pottery studio not far from where I am. I mentioned I'm I'm about 50 miles north of New York City now in a part of the the state where a lot of people from New York City who were priced out uh, of real estate have moved. And so they've taken all of these uh, jobs and, and businesses and practices up here and open them up uh so this is one example he's a he's a potter who has his own studio near me and i was i was actually i was interviewing him for a different project um that's unrelated but was unrelated to to craft and work but i still would talk about these sorts of topics um 
in part because they were they're, they're relevant in a very narrow way, but also in part because I'm I'm interested. I'm I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to uh, craftspeople. I just I love hearing them talk about their their work. That's you know fascinates me. Um, and the book Masters of Craft definitely ignited that in me. I love hearing people talk about their work process, and then he would talk to me about all the classes that he was running and he was doing after school programs for for kids and all the different people who were who were coming into his studio and he said something to me that i loved he said the world doesn't need more plates the world doesn't need more cups he's like that's not what we're doing here um if you get a cup, great. You get a mug, you get a plate you can eat off of. That's that's fantastic. What we're trying to teach people here is connecting them to an ancient practice that uh, makes us who we are. And that's what I'm trying to, to pass on to people. That's what the kind of conversation I want people to have when they're done here. I'll talk about glazing, you know, till, till you get... Till you get bored but and i love talking about glazing but really what i want you to really recognize is when you, when you put your hands in in the clay that you know you're doing something that connects you to your species right that connects you to your your past on this planet you know your relationship to the planet and i love that he, he really um by saying that just really, really captured a lot of the essence of what I've been hearing so much from those other craftspeople over the years. Uh, even if, even in, you know, in different ways, you know, barbering is a little, little different, obviously. Um, bartending, distilling, a little different from, from pottery, but still the, the, the message was, was there throughout um, all those different stories that these folks were providing a service. They were giving you a product, something practical, something enjoyable, something you can talk about, but, you know, really it was, they were connecting people to themselves, to each other, to their pasts. Um, and that, that stays, that's always stayed with me, that, that idea of uh, these activities as forms of, of connection in all those different ways. So that's, uh, that's my, that's my story. <laughs> That's a beautiful story to end on, Richard. It certainly has particular poignancy when, when thinking about developments like artificial intelligence, which will raise the question of, you know, what will humans do when mm. most work, work is automated? Mm -hmm. And uh, part, of, part of it is just ways of continuing the human story. Uh, and we certainly learn in Australia from our, 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 our first peoples uh, the value of uh, sustaining ancestral knowledge and uh, that these particular techniques uh, are ones that uh, provide that uh, across many different peoples, even in what we call the developed world uh, now. So it's it's a wonderful mm -hmm. example of, of how what we might see as a threat can, can lead to some kind of renaissance in that. Mm -hmm. So... Thank you very much, Richard. I really appreciated the, the time and uh, uh, thank you for your book, which does pose many of these interesting questions and perhaps a, a path, path forward for us. 
Thank you very much, Kevin. I appreciate it. You've been listening to a podcast from Garland Magazine. Please check our website, garlandmag.com, for more stories behind what we make.